Our passage comes from Nahum, chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. Nahum from the Old Testament, a minor prophet from the Old Testament. Nahum 1, beginning in verse 2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries and keeps wrath for His enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His ways in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of His feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before Him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before Him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before His indignation? Who can endure the heat of His anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by Him. The Lord is good, a stronghold on the day, in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. But with an overflow and flood, he will make a complete end of his adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. This is God's word. You may be seated. We uh, continue our series on the character of God. We've looked at various qualities of his character, and today I want to look at anger or wrath. We've talked about justice before in this series, God is a just God, but it is also true that God is an angry God, and we want to talk about that specifically as it relates to His character. Now, I have not been preaching a very long time, probably about 20 years or so I've been in the pulpit, and I remember that in the beginning of my ministry when I would preach on God's wrath, I would talk about God's wrath and hell and judgment as a dirty little secret of evangelicalism. That's what I used to call it, because few preachers wanted to talk about it, um, even though most of us believed in God's wrath and eternal judgment in hell. It was sort of one of the, those things you wouldn't bring up naturally in conversation. Many people thought that maybe that's not something you would use in apologetics very much. Now, that was 20 years ago. Uh, today, what I find is that God's wrath has become almost too embarrassing to affirm, even in secret, that among evangelicals, among evangelical preachers, this idea of God's anger, this idea of hell and judgment has become too embarrassing almost. And so not only do we not talk about it as much as we should, many of us have stopped believing in it. I think it's a real issue. Because in the Bible, it is God's anger, God's wrath is repeatedly attributed to His character. Now, we read from Nahum, but we can read from almost any book of the Bible and see that God is an angry God, is a vengeful, is a, is a wrathful God. This is, this is not new to anybody who's read the Bible. And so if God is perfect and is to be considered in the fullness of His character. We cannot exclude the wrath of God either from our theology, what we believe, 
or from our worship, how we relate to Him, how we praise Him. Now listen to A.W. Pink, uh, who's a, a, a Christian writer, a commentator, and I think this is probably about 100 years ago when he wrote this. He has a book on the attributes of God. This is how he begins his chapter on God's wrath. He says, It is sad to find so many professing Christians who appear to regard the wrath of God as something for which they need to make an apology. Or at least they wish there were no such thing. While some would not go as far as to openly admit that they consider it a blemish on the divine character, yet they are far from regarding it with delight. They like not to think about it, and they rarely hear it mentioned without a secret resentment rising up in the hearts against it. Even with those who are more sober in their judgment, not a few seem to imagine that there is a severity about the divine wrath which is too terrifying to form a theme for profitable contemplation. Others harbor the delusion that God's wrath is not consistent with His goodness and so seek to banish it from their thoughts. In a sense, what Pink is saying is that we've always struggled with this idea. We've always struggled with wrath. Few Christians contemplated with delight. But his point is that if it is who God is, if this is part of his character, if wrath is just like patience, is just like grace, is just like love, is just like faithfulness and truthfulness, all those things we celebrate, if wrath is like that, it's part of his character, we should not only believe in it, but we should praise him for it. We should meditate on that. We should, that should be part of our piety. That should be something that is, is part of our picture of who he is in which we delight. So my question this morning to you is, and that's my central question, is very simple. Do you praise God for His anger? Do you praise Him for His anger? Do you thank Him for His wrath? If it is as much a part of God's nature as all the other attributes, for which we have no trouble praising Him, why do we not also praise God for His wrath? Now, I, I was confronted with this question personally before I considered preaching on this topic. I was on vacation, and I was swimming with my youngest, Evangeline, and, and I had a lot of time on my hands because the girl loves to swim. And so I was in the water with her, sometimes just by myself, just me and Evie. I'm trying to keep her safe, trying to keep her close to shore. And, and I'm, you know, my mind is available at that point, so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to occupy my thoughts. And, and something I, I've done here and there in my life, and some of you have done it as well, you go through the attributes of God in alphabetical order. Have you done that? Where you just, you pray through the ABCs. You start with A, you think of an attribute of God like awesome, and you praise Him for it. You go to B, and you say, God is beautiful, and you praise God for His beauty. And so I've done that a few times in my life and always found it profitable because it, it challenges you. Uh, it challenges your theology because you're trying to see God in His fullness and you think of particular scriptures that reflect His character. It also challenges your creativity because, man, you get to some of those letters, right? And you're like, xylophone is not going to work here. <laughs> and that's the only one I know for that letter, right? X-ray, I guess, is the other one, but... And, and so this time, I started with A, and for whatever reason, I started with anger. That was my first, first attribute that came to mind. 
I was like, A, anger. And it startled me a little bit because I thought, okay, the whole exercise is designed to praise God for who He is. And so I praised Him for His anger. And I thanked Him for His wrath. But it was difficult. There's, a, there's an inner tension. How do you praise God for something that most of us consider a negative trait? And most of us have had an experience in life where anger was damaging, either to us, as we have expressed it, or as it was expressed toward us. So I want to wrestle with this with you this morning. And my, my, I have two goals, which is sort of our outline. Two goals. One is I'd like to give us reasons to praise God for His anger. So what are the reasons? I have three reasons to praise God for His anger. So I want us to think through it and to, to wrestle with Scripture and to, to see if God is who He is and we are to praise Him for who He is and anger is part of who He is, we should praise Him for it, but let's figure out why. What are the reasons? And secondly, my other goal is I'd like to consider three benefits of praising God for His anger. So if we do that, if we actually praise Him for His anger, what are the benefits that we will see in our lives? And I have three of those benefits as well. So the reasons to praise God for His anger and the benefits of praising God for His anger. Okay, my first reason here comes from our text. Well, all of these come from our text. First reason is that God's anger shows us that He cares about His creation. One of the reasons, the first reason to praise God for His anger is that it shows us that He cares about His creation. His wrath against sin shows us that God is present, that God is engaged in the life of His creation. Now look at verse 2 in our text. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. This is not a description of a God who is distant or indifferent. You can't read it that way. The Lord is a jealous God. He, he can't stand to see us worship idols or strive to find meaning and security outside of a relationship with him. He's jealous for us. He's very much engaged with us. The Lord is an avenging God. He's committed to restoring justice. Verse 3 says that the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. God recognizes that there's evil in this world, there's evil in us, and He means to punish it. He's, he's engaged, He's here, He's present, He cares. Verse 8 tells us that God pursues His enemies into darkness. The I mean, beautiful and very disturbing picture of, of God so committed to justice that He will pursue us even into the dark where we're hiding from Him because He cares and He is engaged. One theologian defines this attribute of God, God's wrath, in this way. He says, God's wrath, in perfect harmony with all His divine attributes, is the holy action of retributive justice towards persons whose actions deserve eternal condemnation. God's wrath in perfect harmony with all His divine attributes is the holy action of retributive justice towards persons whose actions deserve eternal condemnation. 
Now here in Nahum and, and all over the Scriptures, we are presented with a vision of God who is neither oblivious nor indifferent to the devastation sin has brought on His creation. He cares. Now, of course, for many evangelicals today, and I'm speaking to us because I know us, our large evangelical community, and for many of us, God has become distant. And we see Him sort of out there, and we even affirm all His attributes, but we don't feel that He's particularly connected to us, to here. He's sort of disengaged. Maybe He's given up on us. And for others, He is no more than a divine therapist whose job is to make me feel better about my struggles. Anger doesn't fit in these things. Anger, in fact, meditating on anger, delighting in anger, praising God for His anger, corrects both of these common misconceptions, that God is not engaged and that God doesn't care but just to help me feel better. God is intimately present in His creation, and He is incredibly angry. He is furious at the dysfunction and injustice of sin. When I think about it this way, I do want to praise Him. I want to thank Him for that because that's the God ultimately I need, and that's the God that I want. That's the God I want to worship, a God who is engaged, a God who is not overlooking things in this world. God who cares, God who is angry about things he should be angry about. He cares, so I praise him for it. Second reason why we should praise God for his wrath is that his wrath shows us that he is a moral person. He's a moral person. Anger is an expression of moral judgment. Anger presupposes morality. It presupposes assessment of right and wrong. And when we praise God for His anger, we accept, by default, we accept that He is able to discern good and evil and that He is against everything that is evil. If God were not angry, if this attribute was missing from His character, and some people wish that it were missing and they want to delete that from that list, but if you did that, if God were not angry... He would not be moral. If God is not against anything bad, how can there be anything good? If God were not angry at sin, we would conclude that He thinks there is nothing wrong with sin. If it doesn't get God angry, then it must be fine. It must be okay. If God were not angry, we would have to accept that the world is as it should be. And then why should we struggle? Why should we fight? Why should we think anything is wrong here? Now, you see this dynamic of moral indignation when Jesus comes and realizes that Lazarus had died. Remember that story in John 11? Jesus is told that Lazarus is dying. Lazarus dies. Jesus comes, and Lazarus is in the tomb. And John 11:33 says that Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, deeply moved doesn't just denote sorrow and that sort of emotional response of sadness, but it also means indignation. It actually means anger. Jesus was angry at the death of Lazarus. Passages like this make me want to praise him, that he comes to see his friend, and his friend is dead, and he is angry. 
Jesus is angry at death because death doesn't belong in this world. Death is wrong. Death is morally wrong according to God. And so Jesus gets angry. It's not natural, and it makes him angry. Death is his enemy, and he will pursue death into the darkness because it doesn't belong in his creation for which he cares. So we should praise him for it. We should praise him that Jesus is indignant at evil, that Jesus is furious at sin. I mean, what a good God he is that he can recognize when something is wrong and he is angry at it. One of our problems with delighting in God's anger, and I'm, I'm, I'm deliberately using this language, I'm, I'm, I'm forcing us to, to consider that this is an attribute just like any other, that we have to do what we do with the other attributes. We're supposed to delight in it and worship God and praise Him for it, thank Him for it. One of the problems is that we have, a trouble, we have trouble delighting at God's anger is that our experience of anger is often anger that's out of control. For example, we've all experienced someone just fly off the handle and lose their temper and, and cause tremendous damage, whether physically, as it comes out in violence, uh, or emotionally, somebody gets crushed by someone's anger, or relationally, relationships are broken because of anger and outbursts of uncontrolled rage. And so, when we think about anger, many of us think of that. We think of that uncontrollable, just overwhelming kind of rage that a person exhibits. But this is not how it works with God, which is why we can delight in His anger. His anger is never out of control. It's not, a, not out of His control. His emotions do not cloud His judgment. They don't get the better of Him. They don't, that's not how God is. God is perfectly harmonious in all His attributes and parts. His power is, is never misused through the exercise of uncontrolled anger. Now look at verse 3. It's, it's interesting the way Nahum puts these two things together. He says, the Lord is slow to anger, a familiar theme in Scripture. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. Slow to anger and great in power. Now, you see, his power doesn't just break out in anger, where he just can't control it, but he is so powerful he can kill anybody in, around him. That's not how it works. It's perfectly controlled, and it is slow to anger because it's balanced, and it's timely, and it's right, and it's directed to the right person at the right time. It's difficult for us to understand because it's so unlike our experience of anger. But it's nonetheless true of God. And part of what we are wrestling with is coming to grips with the idea of God as He is, as He presents Himself, and not as we imagine Him to be, whether removing anger completely out of His character or inferring that His anger is like our anger or like my dad's anger. Now, another problem that we might have with praising God for His anger and delighting in it is that in our experience, we are often angry at the wrong thing or the wrong person. It's misdirected. So on the one hand, anger is a moral emotion. And so whenever you're angry at someone or something, you're saying, this is wrong, this is evil, it must be punished, it must be destroyed. That's the nature of anger. The problem is that we very often 
misdirected. And so we put it on somebody who's not wrong or on something that is not evil, and we lash out in this uncontrolled rage. Now, the proverbial example is a man frustrated with work coming home and kicking the dog, right? The dog had nothing to do with the stress at work. It's just there. But for us, that is often our experience of anger. It's just this sort of almost random expression of fury on whoever is closest. But look at how Nahum describes God in verse 7. He says, the Lord is good. The Lord is good. He is experiencing moral emotions and taking moral actions, which is anger is one of them. And yet all that is done in his moral goodness. He's not simply angry because he can't control it or because it just has to come out and whoever is closest gets it. He is morally good. God is never not good when he is angry. Hard for us to imagine, I know, but God is never not good when he is angry. His anger, in fact, is an expression of his moral goodness. This is part of his goodness is to be angry. Part of his goodness is to punish. Part of his goodness is to take vengeance. We have to wrestle with these things because in our experience, in our broken sinful experience, is so different. We have to submit to Scripture. We have to see God as he reveals himself. Here's a third reason for praising God in his anger and for his anger. We should praise God because his anger toward us has been satisfied on the cross of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. Now, it's interesting that in the middle of a description of God's wrath on His enemies, there is a promise of refuge for some. Now, the whole passage is, is terrifying. I mean, you, you read that and creation literally melts at the fury of his anger. That's the passage, right? Rocks split, hills melt, rivers dry up. Because it's so overpowering. Who can stand before his anger? Who can, who can withhold, withstand his indignation? And yet, in the middle of it, verse 7, we're given, we're given this, this promise that somehow he can also be a refuge. Somehow he's a stronghold in the day of trouble. Then when wrath comes, you can hide yourself in him. In other words, what we're reading here, and that's alluding and hinting, and it's more fully developed in other passages that we'll look at in a second. But what Nahum is telling us is that God protects some from his own wrath. His wrath is just and is directed towards sin and sinners, and yet some sinners see God as a stronghold and as a refuge. Now, R.C. Sproul, the late theologian R.C. Sproul, was asked, what are we saved from? What are we saved from? We talk about salvation too, right? But what are we saved from? It's a great question. I wonder how you would answer that. Sproul said, we're saved from God. Would you answer that question that way? What are you saved from? We're saved from God. Uh, A.W. Tozer put it a little differently, but the same idea. He says that we must take refuge in God from God. We must take refuge in God 
from God. Now, if God is angry at sin, He's not oblivious or indifferent, if His moral judgment is perfect, and He will by no means clear the guilty, where does it leave us, those who rightly deserve God's wrath to be poured out on us? Verse 6 poses that question. Who can stand before His indignation? Who can endure the heat of His anger? This is the question that all of us need to be asking ourselves as we meditate on God's anger, as we, we praise Him for His anger. We have to ask ourselves, who of us, me, can I be with God who is angry? Can I withstand His indignation? What can I do when His fury comes to me? And the answer that's given in this text and in the larger context of Scripture is that the only hope of enduring the heat of His anger and the indignation is taking refuge in God Himself. God has to save us from His wrath. And that is exactly what happened on the cross. The Bible says that Jesus became the propitiation for our sins. I'm glad Jay read that First John uh, passage, and, and First John talks a lot about propitiation. He puts it in very specific terms. He says that Jesus has become the propitiation for our sins, meaning that Jesus satisfied God's wrath on our behalf, that Jesus did something that appeased God's wrath. He took His wrath, and He did it in our place, and He appeased it, and He removed it from us. Jesus, who is both God and man, experienced God's anger to the fullest degree imaginable in our place for us. And thus He appeased it. He drank it to the bottom, that cup to the bottom of it. Romans, Romans 5.9 helps us understand it a little bit better. Paul says, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, that's His death, that's the cross, that's what He did for us, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Now, I, I, we, need, we need to read Scripture, we need to recognize for what it says. It says that what Jesus did saves us from God's wrath. Jesus is God, so God Himself saves us from His wrath. This is a, a central truth of the gospel. If we don't get that part, I, I'm going to say, I don't know that, if we, that we can say that we understand the gospel. Because it's at the very core of what Jesus did. He came to do something so He can save us from Himself. What happened on the cross appeased God's wrath. Now, I want to take you to Matthew 27, 51. Just one, one verse, Matthew 27, 51. One verse that describes the death of Jesus and pulls these different threads together. It's, it's, if you read the Bible, you see all sorts of connections. And so in the Nahum passage in the back of your mind, you read Matthew 27, 51. And Matthew records that when Jesus died, the earth shook and the rocks split. That's what Nahum is talking about. Why? Because of God's fury, because of God's wrath being poured out on the cross. 
And even though it was concentrated on Jesus, there was so much wrath, there was so much fury that the rocks couldn't stay together intact. So the rocks split, the earth shook, there was an earthquake, there was darkness. But it tells us something else. That same verse tells us that the curtain of the temple was torn in two, top to bottom. As the fury of God was poured out like fire on Jesus, the rocks split, the earth shook, darkness came, and then something happened in the very center of the temple. That curtain, that ancient curtain that's supposed to shield us from God's wrath, that's part of its purpose. It's to protect us from God's glory, to protect us from His holiness. That curtain was torn in two, basically saying, we don't need to be shielded from God's wrath anymore. Why? Why that moment? Why not the resurrection? Why is it the moment of the death of Christ? Because He takes His wrath in our place and it's removed. It's just not there anymore. We don't need to be fearful anymore. We can go to God directly. We don't need curtains. We don't need holy of holies anymore. This is an amazing thing that when you, the more you think about this, which is, of course, is the gospel, is what we always talk about. Are you not moved to praise Him for His wrath? Are you not moved to worship Him? Say, God, you are rightly an angry God, and yet your anger was satisfied on the cross. And so I will praise you for that. I will praise you because though you are an angry God, I can praise you because you welcome me into your presence and I can be there and there's no curtain anymore and I'm safe from the fury of God. Those are the reasons, three reasons. Now let's quickly look at the benefits of praising God. If you take my advice and if going through your ABCs of God's attributes, maybe you start with anger or maybe you get to wrath in the W, wherever you get there and you, you say, okay, this is who God is, and so I will praise Him for that. And maybe you remember a couple of reasons that we just went through. If you do that, there are benefits. Your life will change. Now, let me give you a quote from J.A. Packer that he kind of gives you lots of benefits. And then I'll, I'll, I'll do three that are connected to our reasons. This is what Packer says. No doubt it is true that the subject of divine wrath has in the past been handled speculatively, irreverently, and even malevolently. No doubt there have been some who have preached of wrath and damnation with tearless eyes and no pain in their hearts. No doubt the sight of small sects cheerfully consigning the whole world, apart from themselves, to hell has disgusted many. He says it could be done badly, and it has been done badly. Yet, he says, if we would know God... It is vital that we face the truth concerning His wrath, however unfashionable it may be, and however strong our initial prejudices against it. Otherwise, we shall not understand the gospel of salvation from wrath. These are the benefits. Not the propitiatory achievement of the cross, nor the wonder of the redeeming love of God, nor shall we understand the hand of God in history and God's present dealings with our own people. Nor shall we be able to make head or tail of the book of Revelation. Nor will our, our evangelism have the urgency enjoined by Jude. 
save some by snatching them out of the fire. Neither our knowledge of God nor our service to Him will be in accord with His Word. Packer is saying, even though we've often done badly with God's wrath, we didn't, haven't talked about it enough, and when we did, sometimes we would make weird assumptions, and we would talk about it as if it didn't exist. We made all of that, all those mistakes, and yet we have to talk about it, we have to accept it as truth, and we have to delight in it if we are to know God and live the way He wants us to live. So let me give you three, quickly, three benefits of praising God for His anger. Number one, if you praise God for His anger, you will experience a deeper intimacy with Him. You will experience a deeper intimacy with God. If anger is part of His character, and if we seek to know Him as He is, praising Him for His anger inevitably leads to a clearer picture of who He is and a deeper relationship with Him. You see, if I, if I want to be closer to Him, I want to know Him better, I want to see Him as He is, anger is part of it. And if I focus on that, if I delight in that, if I worship Him for that, if I praise Him for it, I know Him better. And now I am in a deeper relationship with Him. Now, I said that one of the reasons to praise God for His anger is that it shows us that He is present, that He cares, that He's engaged. And so the question is, why is He present in the sinful world? Why did Jesus come? Why does He care about sin? Well, the simple answer is, is because He wants a relationship with you. He wants you. He's jealous for you. And so, thinking about anger, thinking about God's wrath, puts us right in that relationship with Him. It makes us think about who He is. It makes us think why He cares that He is angry about sin. Now, in some way, God's wrath is similar to His jealousy. Nahum certainly connects the two. His anger towards sin, like his jealousy for us, shows how intensely he loves us. Well, I, I know that we often put wrath and love on separate ends of the spectrum, right? And we juxtapose those two, we, we put them opposed to each other, and we say, God can't be loving if he's wrathful, and if he's wrathful, how can he be loving? I mean, we do that, but that, that isn't biblical. In fact, in the Bible, wrath and, and love are together. God is not divided in Himself. His character is perfectly harmonious, and so His wrath and His love function completely in, in perfect harmony and in line with each other. In fact, wrath, in the way it's supposed to be expressed, not in the way it's often expressed in our experience, but in the way wrath is supposed to function, is an expression of love. You see, wrath or anger is, is a defensive thing. You're defending someone or something you love. That's the right kind of anger. If your love is threatened, if your loved one is threatened, you come against whatever the threat is in anger. That's what God does. So when we meditate on His anger, it actually draws us closer into a loving relationship with Him. Praising Him for His wrath allows us to see Him as He is and to love Him as He is. God's anger, meditation on His anger, delighting in His anger, it checks our idolatry and it helps us to relate to God in the fullness of who He is and all His character. And that leads us to deeper worship and intimacy with Him. Now, the second benefit 
of delighting and worshiping God for his anger is deeper repentance. It's deeper repentance. Praising him for his anger helps us relate to sin as God relates to sin. One of the greatest deficiencies of many a Christian life is our inability and or unwillingness to take sin seriously. I'm just going to be very clear. There is no greater problem in your life today than sin. There's no greater problem than sin. That's your problem. That's my problem. And if I think there are other problems that are more important than my sin, I'm living not according to God's reality. If I am more stressed out about house renovations, just as a random example, (laughs) then my sin, I am not seeing sin as God sees his sin or my sin. So I need to come to grips with that. I need to hear that God is angry at sin. I need to delight in his anger against sin so I can come in line with what he thinks because I don't take it seriously, and he does. So if you praise God for his anger towards sin, then you begin to wrestle with the seriousness and the gravity of sin, your sin, and it leads to repentance. It leads to renewal. It leads to forgiveness. It leads to restoration. If God is so angry at sin, now remember how Nahum describes it. If God is so angry at sin, He melts the hills and He splits the rocks and He dries up rivers. That's how angry He is at sin. Why am I not angry at my sin? Why am I so nonchalant about it? Why doesn't it matter to me as much as it does to him? Why am I justifying and hiding and denying my sin? Why am I not taking it seriously? Listen to Jen Wilkin in her book on the attributes of God, attributes of his character. She says, while I can identify with the desire to edit God's wrath from the Bible, or to contain it to the Old Testament, and many of us identify with that. We, in our hearts, there's, there's a feeling that, I wish it weren't so, maybe we can somehow put it in the background. We all feel that, but we all have to come under the authority of Scripture, and so does she. And she says, to do so would compromise His holiness and posture before it. There's no way to reach genuine repentance without striving to grasp the justice of God's wrath. Let me read this again. There is no way to reach genuine repentance without striving to grasp the justice of God's wrath. As long as I view His wrath as excessive or cruel, I labor under a limited understanding of the danger and depravity of sin. So when I look at God and I say, well, that's too much. God shouldn't have killed Ananias and Sapphira. It's too much. And I think that it's excessive, that it's cruel. What I'm not understanding is the seriousness of sin. I'm operating under a limited understanding of the danger and depravity of sin. So I need to hear that God is angry. I need to worship Him as an angry, wrathful God so I can repent 
so I can change. And finally, the last benefit of praising God for His wrath is deeper gratitude for the gospel. Deeper gratitude for the gospel. Praising God for His wrath, especially His wrath satisfied for us on the cross of Jesus, moves our hearts to thank Him. It moves our hearts to be grateful for what He's done because we know what His wrath is. We know that it's right. We know that it's rightly directed towards me. And yet we also know that it was satisfied by Jesus. When I start putting those things together, and this is how I see the gospel, it moves my heart to be incredibly grateful. And it gives me safety, security, freedom through the gospel. Because I don't need to compromise on His wrath. I can simply accept that it was satisfied on the cross. J.A. Packer again, he says, Between us sinners and the thunderclouds of divine wrath stands the cross of the Lord Jesus. If we are Christ through faith, then we are justified through His cross, and the wrath of God will never touch us, neither here nor hereafter. Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. Doesn't make you incredibly grateful. I mean, we sang all those songs in the beginning. My heart is moved by those songs because they're telling me that God, though He is angry, He is loving and He's satisfied that anger without compromising His justice, without compromising His character, but He's satisfied that anger on the cross. And so He saved me from His wrath by sending Jesus to become our atonement, our propitiation, our sacrifice, our substitution. The curtain is torn in two. There's nothing that stands in the way of our relationship with God now or in eternity. So I'll end with this. I'll just challenge you. I wonder if you have experienced that salvation. I wonder if you have been saved from God, by God if you have taken refuge from God in God. There are only two options when it comes to the wrath of God. Either you take it or Jesus takes it for you. And I'm going to encourage you, if you're not a believer, you're not a Christian, maybe you're here for the first time, maybe you've never heard any of what I just said before today, Maybe you're watching online and you just randomly tuned in and you hear God's wrath. Hear me, there's salvation from God's wrath. And it's only in Jesus. So run to Him and take refuge in Him. He is your stronghold in the day of God's wrath.